So it's probably overstating it to call it a law. Uh, it's more of an observation or an economic theory. And uh, the observation that Gordon Moore made was that they would be able to cram twice as many transistors on a chip every two years or so. Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women. Their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science. Hello, my name is Nicholas DeMille. And I'm Ben Stevens. Supercomputing, extreme computing, high-performance computing. Regardless of what you choose to call it, it underpins much of the cutting-edge scientific research being done today. In this bonus episode, we follow experts from around the world to the epicenter of supercomputing, the annual North American Supercomputing Conference, or SC19. We ask them how the future of computers, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and much else are coming together to shape the way we explore and understand our world. He thought it would last for maybe 15 years or so because it's an exponential, uh, but it ended up lasting for 50 years. So every 18 months to 24 months, we would be able to double the number of transistors you could put on a chip. Um, and also, each of those transistors would be proportionally more energy efficient, so it would also improve the clock rate and it would improve the energy efficiency each generation. That's John Schaff, Department Head for Computer Science in the Computing Research Division at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. In 2004, the uh, Dennard scaling, which was our ability to uh, reduce voltages and therefore have exponentially increasing clock frequencies, that ended in 2004. So the only way we could extract more performance is to go with extreme parallelism. And that led to the exascale programs in many countries, you know, multi-billion dollar investments to redesign the machines and our software and our applications uh, to overcome that. But the second shoe is about to drop, and that's that we can't even cram more transistors onto the chip because we're getting down to atomic scale and also uh, the value uh, for continuing to shrink transistors. It isn't delivering performance improvements for the end applications. So that means we need to look at a new approach to getting performance out of future computer chips. In the uh, near term, uh, the only game in town is architecture specialization. And uh, if you look at like the Google TPU, if, if the algorithm that they had implemented with this specialized AI processor uh, was what we needed for exascale, then we could have done an exaflop machine in 2015 with just three megawatts of power. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't do what we need for science. Uh, and the question is, uh, how can we learn from the kinds of specialization uh, that we need to do to make science successful and continue to scale into the future. You mentioned a bit about AI and machine learning, um, and uh, there are lots of people talking about this. I think there are fewer people talking about how you train the next generation of people and, and what that means for 
uh, recruiting talent and things? Because I think, particularly in your area of the world, that's ex- exceptionally hard. So yeah. talk a little bit about that. Well, actually, talent recruitment mm. and AI and machine learning is especially difficult mm. because we have Google right there in right. South Bay. Uh, and, and I am a little bit concerned that we're trying to out-Google Google. Uh, it, it so happens, though, that um, uh, the lab environment is a very open research environment. It allows uh, people to pursue uh, interesting uh, and scientifically impactful directions, uh, whereas uh, working for a company, um, you, you have to f- toe the, the, the line in order to do things that make money for the and then follow the product direction. So uh, I do find that people who are interested in what the lab has to offer um, uh, are willing to take the uh, less pay uh, in, in exchange for uh, research and academic freedom. And, and that's always kind of the, the, the tension. There's no, there's no way we're going to out-compete Google on, uh, uh, on paychecks, but we can out-compete them on interesting things to do. What is that crystal ball that you look into to say researchers in five and ten years are going to need X? How, how do you do that? Huh. How do we do technology forecasting? I mean, uh, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time in a meeting like this finding out what people, especially in other countries, are doing because you end up uh, kind of confined to your group think from uh, the people that you have regular contact with coming to a meeting like this, I get to ask um, uh, people who are thinking completely differently about uh, technology roadmaps. And, uh, you know, in DOE, we are fairly mission-oriented. DOE, the side of DOE I'm in is the Office of Science, which does all of the basic sciences, uh, splitting atoms, material science, genomics. And uh, so I always start with uh, what are the big scientific challenges uh, that need computing in the future? I feel like I've heard a number of people say, and I think that's where you're headed with this, that um, storage of this data is perhaps the biggest bottleneck. Is that what I'm, is that, am I getting that correct? Uh, Not storage. It's actually, it's generating data, but uh, 90% of the data is noise. And uh, so uh, if we could integrate processing inside of the sensor where the data is produced, we could get rid of 90% of the data. Uh, This is also the case for the HEP detectors for CERN. Um, uh, There's a lot of events that contain no interesting or scientifically useful information, uh, but it takes a lot of computing horsepower integrated right next to the sensor to uh, to f- get that 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 out of the way so um, but it is also the case that our data storage technologies are based on uh, a concept that dates back to tape in the 1950s um, if you just look at uh, the the way that you do read write open close it looks like the little buttons on your old reel-to-reel tape deck because uh, that's actually what the entire IO was based on was tape decks um, uh, but if you look at today's storage technology, it looks nothing like tape at all. Uh, in fact, it looks more like memory than ever before. And yet our storage technology has not uh, evolved to treat uh, storage in a modern way, that it's really just another form of memory. And that's a big opportunity for change in the software environment, 
revise our entire concept of file systems and create an environment that is aligned with the technology and also more useful for the researchers. John Chef, thank you for talking to us. Thanks. <laughs> We've seen that convergence between ML, AI, and the HPC world uh, in the past few years, actually. And um, for us, HPC people, we see it basically as another application. That's Saber Fecky, a computational scientist team lead in the KAUST supercomputing core lab. We have been working with computational sciences and engineering in different areas mm -hmm. uh, for HPC. And ML and AI now is the newcomer, and it seems that the HPC platform is very suitable to these kind of applications. The community of AI and machine learning is not acquainted to the HPC environment in terms of hardware and software. Mm -hmm. So it's coming out from different background in terms of programming models and so on and so forth. And now they are started learning about HPC because uh, the interest coming basically from the fact that HPC platform is very suitable for them to be very efficient and do their work more so, effectively. So do I understand it right then that in a way, AI or machine learning or any other application that falls into that space is in a way just uh, a specific problem for you guys to solve with high-performance high computing? That's correct, yeah. That's the way we see it. And even though they, are, they might be solving different problems that are not always solved in HPC s systems, right. but these people are now coming to us to help them. They, they, they've been working on the cloud and now they are coming to HPC. And even the cloud is becoming HPC and all this dynamic is happening. The other new thing that is, it started happening, it's gonna happen even more in the future, is the merger between AI and HPC together to solve new challenging problems. With machine learning, for instance, is it a, a more flexible application in a way? So it's adapting to data rather than simply using it? So in, in HPC, we have an initial condition and then we, we look at the environment and how it evolves and find out and predict the f end result. The, one example is fluid, throw an airplane and then you have an initial condition and then over time you can see how that evolves. On machine learning it's it's the other way around where you don't generate data but digest data uh, and instead of creating the model mathematically based on the physics you fit the data, massive amount of data typically, uh, you fit that data to a model, it's a data model uh, and make that black box predict what's coming next on different scenarios. of 
milestones are out there to be broken. At the exascale era, okay, we we probably can compute 10 to the power of 18 floating point operation per second. That's fantastic. Uh, and we will solve very interesting problems. Uh, what we still lack uh, is the data ingestion uh, capabilities of these systems. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly the top 500 list skew the design of this system toward more uh, the compute part, right? So there's a big focus on calculating more and more within the second. Uh, but what we miss and we keep asking chip manufacturers and the industry to do is to increase significantly the memory bandwidth, uh, which is a specificity of the system that makes it uh, capable of ingesting data in much bigger rate. Mm -hmm. and, and that would be very important in the next era where smartphones are everywhere, sensors everywhere, and lots and lots of data will be available for people to explore and you will not be able to find out insights or create new models that will help humanity in general uh, without adding this capability of faster ingestion of data mm -hmm. so increasing the storage performance increasing the memory bandwidth and all these things glued together with an exascale system that is needed uh, and we hope to see that happening in the future uh, so, do, so do we still have a data problem in so much as we have so much data that we can't process it or bring it on absolutely board? absolutely mm -hmm. i mean if if you see at most of the big data talks you will the term that always happen is dark data uh, we have in the future we'll have zettabytes of data that's thousands of petabytes and uh, most of it will be dark. Mm -hmm. It just we there is no way on earth that we can we have the capability to uh, get insight of this data and look at it carefully and mm -hmm. find something interesting. You know, we often talk about how it's not just plug a computer in and you have a resource, but it's largely about the people. So, what's the people impact, uh, if there is any, of AI and machine learning kind of coming into this space? Absolutely. Um, we, when we talk to people in the industry, we see we they say about two things. So, mm -hmm. machine learning and AI are hungry for the two type of resources: the compute resources and people resources, because um, these kind of uh, uh, modeling with mm -hmm. for AI uh, requires a lot of trial and error kind of things. Oh. Uh, what we call technically a hyperparameter search mm -hmm. where we look at all multiple combinations of parameters until you get the most fitting model to your data mm -hmm. uh, and that requires also significant human power so uh, we will see that increase in uh, in, in in these searches mm -hmm. uh, so we need more faculty more researchers doing all this uh, work with 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 the end users with with the data holders mm -hmm. and then we need the domain expertise right because ai is typically applied to some domain science right whether it is the red sea models or um, the fishes in the red sea so on and so forth mm -hmm. thanks man thank you
So why do people in general come to uh, this conference? Why is this important, uh, you know, as a, as a, a professional touchstone for, for many people? Well, uh, this is a very large uh, event. No? We have uh, this year almost 14,000 uh, people here. That's Rosa Badia. She's a group manager at the Barcelona Supercomputing Center. And there is people from very different places and from very different profiles. No? So it's a very good opportunity to meet a lot of people no? and uh, to present the new work, to catch up with ongoing projects, uh, to do some uh, volunteer work in the organization so, and to have fun also, <laughs> I'll say, no. So it is really an incredible place to, even it's a black box, uh, I, I think here some of us uh, feel inside the community and uh, it's a very nice event. What do you, what do you think the, the future of HPC is going to be uh, in general? What, what, uh, what, what big picture things um, are, are coming? I think the future is uh, very promising. No? We have a lot of applications that need supercomputing and applications that uh, people don't realize that need supercomputing. And I think this is the secret. No, It's like who would uh, think that we will have smartphones no? some years ago. So I think this is what will happen, no? that uh, HPC will open a box uh, for new uh, opportunities to do many things that we don't imagine now. So... Uh, from the things like uh, better medicine, better uh, exploration of any aspect, no? from climate, from science, geophysics, uh, whatever. Okay, So I think, uh, although, of course, there are also data centers and clouds, but HPC still has a, a, a big uh, roadmap ahead uh, to do a lot of challenges. How do you see uh, the movement of AI and machine learning into this HPC space? And how, how, how does that affect uh, the work that you do back in Barcelona? Well, it's interesting, no? because in, in one side we think, well, it's a new buzzword, a new wiki word, but, uh, and everybody is jumping into it, and everybody now uh, talks of it as an expert. Of course, I'm not an expert, no? but I try to... Uh, use these technologies and combine them uh, with with our uh, environment. No? And then uh, it's very interesting because it enables this, this, the domain experts to have new tools that make their applications much more powerful. No? So this is one aspect, and that's why we try to combine them from our programming model. The other is that we can also use these tools inside our tools, no? as uh, driving our runtime, making better decisions using machine learning or using deep learning. Okay? Deep learning probably is difficult because it requires a lot of data to do the training, but there are a lot of tools for machine learning that can be used for scheduling, for placement, for making decisions. So I think what now is seen as a novelty in a few years will be the way of doing this and we will find this normal no? to use this type of tools in the, in the 
both in the system tools and in the applications. What things seem oh, nearly impossible now, but you think may be commonplace in uh, five to ten years? What, you know, what leaps uh, do you uh-huh. envision? Well, I envision uh, that uh, scientists should be able to do very complex applications uh, that combine uh, uh, simulations, uh, traditional modeling and, and MPI simulations with machine learning uh, in a way that uh, they can build intelligent applications. No? The fact that the, the same application should be able to de- 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 decide the next steps to explore. Okay? Right now we do more uh, deterministic workflows or deterministic applications. In the future, I think that uh, we will be able to build these intelligent applications that will help uh, toward advancing in, in science to getting knowledge much more faster than we can uh, today. How do um, organizations like yours, um, universities, industry, etc., how do they include more female voices in decision-making and bring um, you know, a larger portion of this new generation of students into the fold? Well, I think that there are two different issues. One is if students or girls want to follow the studies, and you cannot uh, um, force them to follow studies if they don't want. No? So what I think we should ensure is that any girl that wants to follow IT is never disencouraged to do it. Okay, This is one thing. Uh, the other thing is when they are already in, that some people say, well, it's more easy for them to uh, just uh, left their work and do another, stay at home, or uh, sometimes that they don't uh, scale positions uh, as easier as men. Probably this is something that in the near future will improve. I think it's a matter of, of, uh, of time. My, my mother uh, wanted to study at the university and, 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 and her father didn't allow her, okay? And, and just after a generation, nobody will do this, no? Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you to you, Nick. I'm a senior research scientist. I think, you know, the um, people on both sides, AI slash ML and HPC, have been sitting on their own world. And we're really saying, um, saying moving forward, um, a convergence which sounds more like um, a consent marriage, where uh, those two notions um, uh, should really get together to be able to help out, uh, you know, scientists in doing their simulation. And uh, they all, both, I mean, have, uh, both notions have um, their own uh, specification. And I think uh, it's really time for uh, the people from both sides to sit together and, and uh, find out common ground. Uh, because it really turns out that those notions are really intertwined uh, in the sense that um, AI uh, will be used moving forward to leverage HPC workload. Yeah. And HPC will be used to leverage AI workload. 
so this is, I guess, uh, a common theme uh, right now in the community. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, and I can speak about it from my own perspective Please, in yeah. linear algebra, for instance, yeah. where, you know, linear algebra. Um, so I'm, I'm developing numerical linear algebra algorithm uh, for massively parallel systems. And um, so linear algebra is, is a common denominator for a broad set of application, right? And so basically, if you are able to speed up a given uh, numerical algorithm, chances are you will have out there two, three, four applications which um, you know, that can benefit from it right away. Um, and uh, looking at AI workload and HPC workload from a linear algebra algorithm developer, I can see that indeed uh, even AI workload can be speed up mm-hmm. uh, using uh, those numerical uh, algorithms. So, um, you know, the good thing about it is, you know, you could have situations where one stole multiple birds. So we used to um, sort of support and service HPC application. Uh, and for us, you know, AI workload are not that much different from HPC workload. Right. So um, because, again, of those um, common um, you know, um, denominator between those two uh, fields. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, 150 years ago, <laughs> uh, uh, one uh, famous uh, Russian scientist come up with a nice algorithm at that time doing the singular value decomposition, which is uh, one of the workhorse uh, linear algebra kernel. Um, and at a time when he came up with that new algorithm, you know, really people laughed at him in the sense that he was actually performing like 10 or 20 times more operation than the standard, you know, singular value um, decomposition algorithm available at that time. And people really laughed at him. And, you know, when he seen this, he, I guess probably he got frustrated and opened the drawer, put the algorithm there, just, you know, close the drawer and, and forget about it. What happened is uh, only, uh, I believe, seven years ago. So people, um, you know, uh, he documented, of course, that work. So people revived uh, his algorithm. Why did they uh, revive his algorithm? Because we had huge computational power today. Okay, so of course at a time there were no <laughs> digital computer available, but um, this 10x uh, slower or more operation algorithm compared to um, the reference one could perhaps be now a, 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 a game a game change uh, for um, on on those current uh, you know system. And uh, what we've seen, so we looked at that algorithm. Uh, we we try to port it on existing uh, you know supercomputers and, and accelerators, and we were able now to actually be ten times faster than the regular algorithm, right? So indeed it, t- it took 150 years really to revive such algorithm, but you needed to have the proper hardware and the proper algorithm available to uh, get uh, you know performance out of uh, this algorithm, which uh, you know uh, has so many operation. Uh, extra operation that the regular one do not have. I'm sure you do in the HPC community, but I don't think a lot of people outside of that world appreciate that there's math that was written that long ago 
that's running on these computers. Do you guys often have a sense of history like that or is that oh, kind of an outlier? Absolutely. I mean, you know, when you give a talk, actually, I remember the first time when I gave a talk about this topic, I have one slide showing, uh, you know, how the algorithm, uh, you know, changed and how, you know, looking at the hardware evolution at the same time and looking at the mismatch, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this algorithm does lots of operation, but it does nice operation in the sense that these operations can uh, be computed in parallel, right? Mm -hmm. In, as we say, embarrassingly parallel. And, and therefore, um, when you put it, when you throw at a computer which has so many resources available, uh, which a few decades ago we did not have, then yeah. all of a sudden, that algorithm can really uh, leverage performance on, on those massively parallel systems. So yeah, I, I do have a slide on this and, and this is always a funny story to tell, but, but that is true. I mean, I think uh, a lot of things have been uh, looked at, you know, um, in history, I mean, in previous uh, decades, and some of them have been completely overlooked. And I think uh, it's probably time to go back to them and revisit uh, this idea and, and see how, you know, today's supercomputer could uh, run them efficiently. Um, what opportunities do you foresee for early and mid-career scientists that these changes in HPC might uh, might bring about? Um, yeah, so, you know, I heard one of our collaborators saying earlier that, you know, he had a daughter uh, which graduated in computer science um, just this year. Yeah. And she never wrote a single line of Fortran uh, programming language. She only knows Python, right? So uh, this was, uh, you know, uh, a nice quote from him. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you know, scientists, the junior scientists, really, um, you know, I think they, uh, you know, it, it's very exciting for them what's coming, uh, what is upcoming, and uh, uh, and AI and HPC are, are really, uh, you know, a theme which are multidisciplinary uh, or cross-cutting uh, themes. Uh, and, and, you know, this, um, this junior scientist can really um, be able to work with, uh, you know, domain scientists uh, from various backgrounds. And I think this is really what is cool about it, uh, uh, that, you know, today you could work with chemists, tomorrow you could work with astronomers, um, and, and really being uh, able to see the impact that you can uh, bring to those uh, domain scientists, um, I think this is really cool. Speaking of those domain scientists, so um, what opportunities do you foresee for them uh, in, in the you know, next five or 10 years in terms of things that we thought were kind of uh, a, a big idea, we'd love to be able to, but we can't, but now it's gonna be possible. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's really cool to be in HBC these days. And uh, uh, indeed, um, you know, what are the, the, some of the things that they will be able to do? I mean, not only, uh, you know, being able to compute faster or get the solution faster, but they will be able to get uh, better out of, your, of their computation and simulation, meaning, uh, you know, higher resolution, for instance, simulation for climate and weather application, um, you know, solving uh, extremely large uh, problem looking at um, you know uh, things that before were not tractable uh, and uh, you know i think this is really exciting for them too excellent thank you for talking to us thank you thanks for having me
So I'm uh, Michael Haru. I work at uh, Sandia National Labs. I'm a senior scientist there. I'm also the uh, director of software technology for the U.S. Uh, Department of Energy Exascale Computing Project. What does the next five or ten years look for the HPC side of things as they continue to deal with AI and ML sort yeah, of demand? Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so within the U.S., there there have been a series of workshops for the Department of Energy called AI for Science, you know, where where we've tried to explore and get you know people who are thinking a little further ahead than others. You know, what are the opportunities for integrating AI or or even substituting AI capabilities for more traditional approaches? Of using that we've done with modeling and simulation. So, so we're trying to understand, okay, if we want to understand the scientific questions or the challenges that face us, you know, this is a whole, this is a whole holistic view of how can we do that, integrating the best of modeling and simulation with the best of machine learning uh, techniques. What does that mean for the people in this space, Uh, training the talent, even getting the talent? I I know because of AI and ML, uh, there is a big challenge. So so talk a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, there's a big challenge uh, in a variety of ways. These platforms are the way forward for many uh, computational communities. You know, GPUs, for example, are, you know, the NVIDIA processors are really good at uh, AI, deep neural networks, and and these techniques are being and and then you have that in, in, in coming at the same time as large data sets are coming on available you know because of internet and and you know large uh, uh, repositories of information that are available where we can really take and and make you know huge advances and insights into things even outside of traditional what we call modeling and simulation which has been the core core part of, of high performance computing for many years so yeah there's a you know growing market uh, there's a growing uh, need for people in this area uh, the talent pool can only grow so quickly uh, so it's it's very challenging but also just extremely exciting you know really fun to be a part of it so universities are essential. That's where a lot of the the fundamental research occurs. Uh, that you know that the you, I, I tend to think of it as you have universities, you have research laboratories that are like the say the DOE laboratories or other international laboratories, and then you have the vendors and and kind of in that order is the time scope and the depth at which they can start to explore ideas. And so universities are where some of the latest and and high risk high reward work gets done. So we need them to participate participate in this very much so yeah community for many of these uh, resources uh, is quite interesting. Do you have any examples that you'd like to share about uh, the research that's being, you know, the outcome of being able to use some of these resources? Um, so, so within the climate science community, for example, there are a lot of uh, new, you know, new efforts where we're trying to make use of these very large machines. Uh, we're also looking at alternatives to uh, you know, more traditional mo- mathematical modeling approaches in some areas. For example, you know, we have a lot of data that come in from uh, you know, sensors and, and you know, just meteorological data, which we can then use uh, in raw form to create
create what are called model-free uh, 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 inference engines, you know, to predict how, say, for example, clouds could behave, you know, which are a difficult thing to predict using uh, tr more traditional approaches. And so, so these are the, some of the things that I foresee uh, you know, being able to you know, qualitatively improve our, uh, both our effectiveness and efficiency in getting insight into some of the really challenging uh, issues that we face as a nation and a world. I've had a number of people also say that they don't completely understand, it's not always completely understood, why some of these algorithms work. Uh, what, what, what is that about? Yeah, well, that's uh, sometimes called the, explain, uh, the explainability, right? Can, so you, so you, you create this inference engine, which is this thing that will predict you know, what's going to happen. Uh, and you use it by giving it training data, and then you, you reserve some of your data to test it, to see, you know, you know the answer. Did the, did the inference engine get the same answer as what the test data would have said it should get? Right, and so you try to balance that. But at the, you know, at, the, at least at this point, we don't understand exactly why it got the answer it got. Nor can we, you know, with full confidence, say that if we give it new data that it's never seen before, that the answer that the inference engine gives us is the answer that is a reasonable answer. Right. So, so it's a challenging issue, and there are a lot of people working on, you know, adding explainability to. Uh, what's com coming out of these uh, you know, AI approaches. Uh, so it's not, it's not an unsolvable problem, it's just that we moved along so rapidly in our capabilities with this hammer, you know, it's a new hammer for us, that we, we, we haven't had a chance to fully uh, understand and characterize you know, when it gives good answers and when it might not give good answers. I'm always asking, what's the crystal ball that you look into to understand how to develop the computing resources that researchers will need five and ten years from now. Right, right. Yeah, so, so in my area, so I lead the, uh, the, I'm the director of the software technology area for the U.S. Exascale project, and our task is to create the software stack of reusable uh, software components that applications use. These are things like, you know, the message passing libraries that all applications use uh, for uh, create, you know, transferring data between nodes on a big parallel computer, uh, the, some of the compiler technology, some of the math uh, scientific libraries, the data and viz tools. So I, I lead that portfolio uh, for the U.S. Exascale project. And one of the things that we're seeing is that uh, we need to invest in high-quality, coordinated software activities so that we can have a sustainable scientific software stack. And so a big emphasis within the U.S. in the Exascale project is to not only create new capabilities, but do so in a way that's coordinated. And I think it's going to be even more important as we start to integrate uh, AI capabilities into what we're doing, because industry provides a lot of AI software. Lots of people use uh, TensorFlow, PyTorch, Keras. These are all you know, well-known tools, right? But as we get deeper into knowing what we need in terms of AI uh, capabilities, we're going to need to ex enhance those, expand, maybe even substitute some of those industry approaches with some of our own approaches that are really adept at doing scientific problems. And so we're going to need to create high-quality software 
uh, and be able to distribute it out to people. And so a lot of the technology we're working on within the USX Sale project is to make the uh, uh, d development and delivery of software to vendors, to the facilities, uh, to our user base as easy as possible. And it's actually working really well. Um, we, we've had a number of meetings here at the, at the supercomputing conference where uh, you know, users who wanted to use existing scientific software you know, and say integrate a library into their application code, they would have to go and individually grab each one of these libraries and build it and test it, look at its interface and try to use it. Uh, but we now because we're coordinating this activity and we're introducing container technologies which allow you, you know, portable binary uh, uh, execution on many different platforms, we're really lowering the barrier to use of these software capabilities and improving the overall software ecosystem for everybody. And I think that that's actually one of the things that is changing and people are recognizing need to change with high performance computing. It's no longer just about the hardware. It actually, is, as much as anything, is also about the software. Wonderful. Thank you for talking to us. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to all of the scientists who took time out to speak with us for this episode. Science Town is produced by Mark Bowes, Alex Aries, and Ryan Yang Yang. I'm Nicholas DeMille with co-host Ben Stevens. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.